Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. I say this to anyone here who is in Christ. You know what you're looking for in life? You already have it. You already have it. You already found it. It already found you. Maybe it doesn't feel that way because here we are on this earth and we are filled with desires. You may have longings right now for change in circumstance. Maybe you have younger kids and you're looking forward to when they're older kids. Maybe you have older kids and you wish they were still younger kids. Maybe you're looking forward to empty nesting. Maybe you're dreading it. Maybe you're looking forward to a change in career or advancement in career. Maybe you have longings even in the spiritual realm. You want to experience new heights of holiness in your own life, new faithfulness in prayer, to reach that next level, the next plateau beyond the next cliff. And so you feel a longing, and with the longing comes a sort of restlessness. Because of this, it's important that we affirm, if you're in Christ, despite the feelings of restlessness and longing you have, you've already arrived. You already have the most important thing, the primary thing that we as people were created to long for. We can't ever forget that. So you say, why don't I feel like that? Well, because you're embarked in the lifelong Christian journey of discovering what you already know, of finding what you've already found, of believing what you already believe, hearing what you've heard, believing it anew. That's what the Christian life is. It reminds me, in fact, of the old British wit, G.K. Chesterton. He never wrote the book, but he said he wanted to write a book With a story like this, an Englishman sets out on his yacht to discover some new island in the South Seas and in a storm gets turned around, or in something gets turned around and ends up rediscovering England from whence he left. But he doesn't know it as he gets off his yacht and he goes onto this foreign shore prepared to meet all kinds of dangers, a real thrill, a real excitement, and he crosses the crest and looks down, and there's a quaint English village. (laughs) He's back home again. And Chesterton says, you might pity such a person. What a waste of effort. But he says, but you don't understand this person. The feeling he would have, you get all the excitement of adventure together with all the comforts of home at the very same time. And this can be applied to us as believers too, because what we're going to see in this letter to the Galatians is not very much that you don't already know. It is your familiar English home. In fact, as we end the salutation today, we're talking about themes like this, the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know about that? Grace, have you heard of that? Peace, God the Father, Jesus Christ our Lord, are any of those new to you? But they don't excite in us the joys that perhaps they did in the past. And that is because you are being called through Scripture today to rediscover England. To set off 
and return right back to the things you already know, but with a new set of eyes, with a new joy, with a rediscovery of the richness of everything you already have in Jesus Christ. If you don't, if you can't settle upon the fact that you already have everything essentially that you're longing for, it opens the door for false teachers, like we'll see in this letter, like the Judaizers, who will come in and say, you feel restless? It's because you're missing something. And we have it. But that's not true. You're not missing anything. It simply has to be rediscovered over and over again. It's us believing the things that we already believe. That's really one reason why this salutation is here in Scripture for your benefit. On the one hand, what we're doing with these three verses we're looking at today is we found a document that contains a letter written 2,000 years ago on the other part of the planet from one man named Paul whom you've never met nor shall in this life, written to churches in Galatia, a place in Turkey that most of you will never visit, written from him to them, and we are today spending this amount of time focused just on a greeting that was written in that letter 2,000 years ago. Why are we doing this? <laughs> God has this as inspired scripture set before your eyes today to remind you of everything you already know, but with the joy and enthusiasm that the Apostle Paul felt about it, because he certainly did. So let's look at that in the salutation as we get ready to rediscover England all through this book. Let's do that in the salutation. Chapter one, we're starting in verse three. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What Paul is doing here in this salutation is following the typical pattern of an ancient letter. You have, these were typical of letters in his day, 2,000 years ago. You have, as we saw last week, the sender, verse 1, Paul. You have the recipients of the letter to the churches of Galatia. And then almost always you would have, following after that, a kind of greeting. So this is very formal, if you will. This is how Paul, of course, would have written a letter. However, this is very formal and typical and very much not typical of a letter you would find in the ancient Near East. So what he does is, in the greeting, for example is he takes, in his context, a context that was a blending of Greek and Jewish, Hellenistic, Greek, and Jewish culture. That's where he lived, right there, in the blending of those things in the ancient world. What Paul does is he takes what would be common or typical for a Jewish greeting, and he takes what would be common and typical for a Greek greeting, very slightly alters them and infuses them with the glories of Christianity and then gives several asides when he mentions from God who, 
raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus Christ, who gave himself? So for example, a typical Greek greeting, just as we get started here, would be the Greek word chairein. And you see this, in fact, in some parts of the New Testament. It's just a way of saying, in a letter, greetings. And a Greek person would put that in their letter. The very first word of our greeting is not chairein. It's charis, meaning grace. But they come from exactly the same root, and a Greek person would know that. It comes from exactly the same root, but it's not the same word. Related, but different. Charis, because grace is a key concept Maybe the key concept within Christian belief. So he slightly altered the typical Greek greeting. Sounds like your typical Chirene greetings, but it's not. Grace. And then he slightly altered, really just translated shalom, which would be the Hebrew greeting, which is still used today, which has this idea of wholeness, peace, blessing upon you. Shalom. And he uses the Greek erene, which simply means peace, a translation of that. So that's his greeting. It's his Jewish and Greek context he lives in, the common greetings, but slightly altered, and then several asides are given. I'm simply pointing out here that there is a real normalness about the beginning of this letter, the salutation, and that if you looked at other letters of the time, it'd be so similar, but it is the differences that make all the difference. Because Paul, with an overwhelming enthusiasm, can't just write greetings. <laughs> he can't do it. He can hardly write five words before you have an aside about Christ or the resurrection or glory to God. And you've probably all known someone who imitates that. Difficult to talk to without glory to God. Bless God. And that's sort of what Paul's doing in the salutation. Maybe that's important to point out at the outset because all of us live lives that... Um, not to stretch the analogy too far, might look rather common on the outside. Not many of us are gracing large stages and wowing the world. We're common, almost like a common salutation, but it's those little differences that make all the difference. And that's true here in the salutation as well, as we're going to see. In terms of structure for this message, I've titled it two by two. Because really what you have, if you boil this message down, this salutation that he gives here, this greeting, I should say, you have two blessings that Paul wishes for the Galatians, and I wish and God wishes for you, grace and peace. And then the only other thing you have are the two blessers whom he wants to do the blessing, the Father and the Son. That's all you have in this greeting. Two blessings from two blessers. But of course, infused with so much glorious Christianity. So that's what we're going to look at today. The two blessings and the two blessers, which God desires, of course, for us as well. So let's do that. Let's relearn, rediscover everything you already know. These two blessings that you already know from the two blessers whom you already know. Look at the two blessings first here, beginning in verse 3. Really, there are the two blessings. Grace to you and peace. But let's isolate that very first one, Chorus. The first blessing that Paul wanted the Galatians to experience and that God wants you to experience richly today is called grace. As I said, there's nothing more Christian or Christianese than grace. <laughs> but for that very reason, it's something we can 
almost forget what it even means. So what I want to do is take just a minute and say, do you know what the word grace even means if it's to be wished to you? <laughs> what does it even mean? How do you know if you've got it? What is this grace that we're talking about? Well, the essential meaning of grace in the Bible is favor. So if you had to get to the very core of what this word means, it's favor. Think about that passage found in Genesis in reference to Noah. When we read, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, that in the Greek translation of that, the Septuagint, that is charis, that's grace, same word used here. Noah found, what did he find in the eyes of the Lord? He found favor. God looked at him with favor, with love, and therefore saved him when he destroyed the world with water. That's the core meaning of grace. But from this core meaning, and this happens in all languages, from this core meaning come various, we could say, sub-meanings that branch out. So for example, if the core meaning of grace is favor... What happens when someone does something because they favor you? The Bible also uses the word grace for that. So if you receive a grace, it's like a blessing from God because he favors you. Or what do you mean, for example, when you say, that lady, she's very gracious. You mean that she behaves in such a way that most people look on with favor. Or what do you mean when you sit down before a meal to say grace. It means gratitude or thankfulness. The Bible uses the word grace also to mean gratitude. Why? Because if God favors you and therefore does a grace or a favorable thing to you, how should you respond? With gratitude. And therefore, another meaning of grace in the Bible is thankfulness. That's why you say grace before a meal. You're expressing your thankfulness for a grace that God graciously gave to you. So as you can see, grace can mean several things in the Bible. That's why sometimes when you're just put on the spot, what's grace? It can be a little tricky. What is grace? In our passage and in many passages in the New Testament, the core idea of grace is favor, but not just favor, it's God's favor. I mean, it's made explicit in our passage because he's wishing the Galatians grace or favor from God. But in many passages, we just hear the word grace and we're supposed to understand it means God's grace or God's favor toward us. Grace to you from God. Now, if you know scripture well, you might think, why would Paul wish Galatian believers God's favor? Because if they're believers, don't they already have God's favor? Isn't that what the gospel's all about? God giving you favor, not because of you, but because of himself and saving you and redeeming you. And he does it on his own. He favors you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be saved. And that was true of the Galatian believers. So we might ask the question, why is Paul expressing this as a wish? That's what he's doing. He's saying, I want you to have grace from God and Jesus. I thought they already had grace. If we're wanting this for you in this room, if you're a believer, you already have grace. What are we wishing for you? This is where it's important to remember grace has a core meaning and then it has sub-meanings. Because you remember grace, it means God's favor, but a sub-meaning is 
It means the things God does in your life because he favors you. Those are graces. Those are expressions of grace in your life. That is primarily what Paul is wishing for the Galatians. It's not that they don't have God's favor, but he wants it to be clear in their life, to them and to others, that God's favor is upon them by the work that God does in them, by them experiencing great joy, by them overcoming sin, by them loving others, not necessarily easy circumstances, but by the work God is doing in them. If you ever overcome sin, if you're married and your spouse ever changes a bad habit, they didn't do it on their own. God gave a, an expression of his favor, worked this power in them, and therefore they're changed. If you yourself change to become more like Christ, it is an expression of God's grace. Now, wouldn't you like, you know God favors you in the gospel, wouldn't you like that to be deeper in your own experience? Wouldn't you like to be absolutely convinced of that? Wouldn't you like to see more and more of the evidences of that by your own flourishing spiritually? Of course you would. That's why Paul says, grace to you. Now, Paul himself, as we're going to see in the early chapters, first two chapters of this letter, used to know nothing about grace at all. He used to think that to get God's favor, he would have to work really hard. And this is why he talks about himself as a good, faithful Jewish man in these first two chapters, so zealous for the traditions of his fathers that he was willing to chase down and persecute these errant Christians as he considered them. He was doing it for God. Why? Because if he does these things, then he gets God's favor. So Paul was an addict of God's favor, if you will, without any clear way to get it, along with the Jewish people, seeking a righteousness but not knowing how to get it. That's how he had lived his life with the utmost zeal. And then when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, that's when it clicked. God's favor doesn't work like that. You don't earn it or it's not grace. And that's going to be his primary objection to the Judaizers who are saying, get circumcised, keep the law of Moses, then God likes you. He's to say, that's not how grace works. God likes you, then you live in love toward others. Paul became in his ministry, I mean, by grace he was saved, as Ephesians 2 says. It was God's favor interjecting, contrary to all his problems, despite them. But then Paul in his ministry became utterly dependent on the grace of God. It almost becomes shorthand for God's very power at work in Paul's life. Think about that famous passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, where Paul three times talks about grace and says this about it. He says, I formerly was persecuting God's people, quote, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Because God in heaven looked on me as I was killing his people and out of his own heart felt favor toward me that I didn't earn. He felt favor toward me. Therefore, he made me what I am today. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any other apostle. But it wasn't me. It was the grace of God that was with me. It's as if God's favor toward Paul, by which he saved him, was also the same favor by which God was actively working in his life, so much so that Paul can say, when I labor, when I work for Christ, when I plant churches, when I evangelize, it isn't me, it's God's favor working with me. It's God's hand upon my life. 
grace. And Paul was quite clear in his own life and ministry, he had to learn it just like we all do, that apart from grace, he couldn't do anything. He couldn't overcome any sin. He couldn't plant any church. He couldn't boldly proclaim the gospel. He could do nothing. But with God's grace, God's grace was sufficient for him even to endure great trials and thorns and suffering. Paul was not someone who naturally had this knack. He wasn't gracious from birth in a way that elicited or earned God's favor. It was just the opposite. He experienced God's grace at the time when he least deserved it. It just fell out of heaven like rain and landed on him and changed his life and gave him an eternity of bliss. So that's why you can understand Paul wants to begin his letter by wishing the same thing for you, a deeper experience of all that God does for those he loves, a deeper experience of God's grace. If you as a Christian are trying to live the Christian life without an active idea of grace in your mind, I'm very sorry about that. You're probably exhausted, I would imagine. If you feel instead that you have to earn God's favor the way Paul felt at first, you just tire yourself out. If you feel like you have a bad day and you lose God's favor and that's that until you can work your way back into it, you're just a hamster on a wheel. And it gets tiring and we've all experienced this. That's why Paul is going to begin this great letter on grace by this wish of grace, that you would know and experience that God's favor for you is a free favor. You're loved because God loved you, not because you're lovely. That's what grace is. Like Jacob, still in his mother's womb, God loved Jacob, had good purposes for Jacob. Paul says before he did good or bad, that's grace. Shocking grace, really. And what Paul is wishing is that that would just be clearer to you. He wants you to have a clearer sense of the grace of God. When was the last time you seriously thought about God's grace? If it's been a long time, you're probably very tired. (laughs) It is the grace of God. It is the promise of his free favor toward us that gives us rest when life is hard that helps us when we fail, as we do, to get back up and continue forward. If you have the sense that God is only a strict taskmaster, that there's his grace and you have to reach up, grab it, and with all your might, pull it from him as he doesn't want to give it to you, you'll be exhausted. But the biblical view of God is just the opposite. It's every letter starting, grace to you. I hope you know God's grace. I hope you know that from his own heart, he loves you. And if you're in Christ, he has loved you from eternity past, according to his purpose. And he loves you now, God's favor. That's grace to you. And I do hope that you know that. And if you're exhausted in the Christian walk, I hope you will dwell on what grace means. Grace to you. That's the first blessing. I hope it's yours in greater and greater abundance. It's the only way we can survive. (laughs) The second blessing that Paul wishes comes out of the first one, pretty naturally. Grace to you, and secondly, peace. Um, I can't dwell long on this, not because it's not worth dwelling long on, but because I only have so much time. But let me just say this about peace here. Like I said, it does come out of the first one, grace. This is another thing like grace that you already have. You already have peace with God through Jesus Christ. You already have ultimately peace with each other 
through Jesus Christ. You remember the famous passage that Paul wrote to the Ephesians when he said, Jesus Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The essence of peace is removing hostility, or you could say removing tumult, troubles. That's peace. If, those, if the tumult is gone and there is an external kind of peace, when there's hostility either between us and God or us and each other, external hostility, then we get external peace, putting down of arms, reconciling together. That's peace. But I think what Paul has in mind primarily here, you have that in the gospel, but what Paul mainly thinks of here is inner peace. So not external, but internal peace. And what is that? It's the ending of the tumult of the human heart, cast about by the waves and troubles and worries of the world. And what Paul is saying is, you already have peace in Christ, but I really hope you're experiencing it. And I really hope it's yours very deeply. If you believe in the favor or grace of God toward you right now, you will have inner peace. You will. If you believe that God's completely in control and he's all-powerful and he's all-wise and he loves you deeply and nothing can change that and you know that everything in the end turns out for good because God's in charge no matter how dark or bad things get here, the consequence will be all the inner tumults that humans experience, wondering about the future. Will things turn out well? Will my life count for anything? Am I just a speck in a massive universe? I mean nothing. Is God angry at me? Am I right with God? Will I be punished forever? Will I be saved forever? All the tumults of the human heart stirring up. God's peace comes in if we see his shining face toward us. If we believe in the gospel, his grace or his favor, then it's like a blanket on a fire and it just puts those tumults out. And we experience peace. This peace is not, I have no troubles at all. There are certain substances on earth that can give you no troubles at all. That's not what God's peace does. You're still going to feel a weight for the churches. You're still going to weep with those who weep. But it's so many of the tumults that we experience that are not necessary as Christians. God's peace comes in. And that's exactly what Paul is wishing for these people and wishing for you. That kind of peace. What the Jewish people called shalom. Similar, a little different. I think the Jewish concept or the Hebrew concept of shalom had more external physical elements to it, which we'll see later when Jesus comes back. But certainly this wholeness, this peace within us, that is what Paul is wishing. Now you can probably think of people, to make this practical, who you would just see as a sort of anchor in life. It seems like no matter what's happening, there's someone you can go talk to and they're very stable. It's like they're assured that things will turn out well. They're not completely falling apart all the time. These are like people firmly planted a tree by a stream of water, yielding fruit that you come and eat from and benefit from. We've probably all known people like this. They're a great comfort to us because they have this kind of peace within them. All Christians do, but some experience it very deeply. They're like an anchor. They're rooted. And we look to them. We hide under their shade. They're a great help to those of us a little more tumultuous. It's so helpful to find someone with this kind of peace. That's what Paul wants for you, for the Galatians for you. It's a deeper experience of peace that says, God has my back. Things will turn out well. He's in full control of the pain I'm experiencing now and has a loving purpose in it. 
no matter how bad it gets. Grace, peace. I've not told you anything new, but do you know what you know here? Have you rediscovered England when it comes to grace and peace? I hope so. And we'll continue to consider these themes all through Galatians. Now, in our passage, that's the heart of our passage, but it's only a few words. And so the focus now turns from the two blessings that God wants for you, grace and peace, to the two blessers and all that is said about them. So let's look at that beginning here, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're a good, theologically astute Christian, you're looking for the Holy Spirit in there too. The triune God, where's the Trinity here? Now, the Holy Spirit is always active. And the things we're going to talk about, the resurrection, Christ giving himself for us, delivering us from the present evil age, the Holy Spirit is involved in every single one of those. But the Holy Spirit typically, although he is exactly fully God, is often at work behind the scenes And so it's not surprising that he's behind the scenes in our passage as well. We especially attribute to him the application of salvation. When it talks about Jesus died to deliver us from the present evil age, you can see the Spirit working there. It doesn't happen without the Spirit. But the Spirit's not mentioned. So we're going to focus on the two blessers mentioned, the Father and the Son in this passage. And look at the asides that are given Because Paul can't just say the Father and the Son. He just can't do it. (laughs) He has to say more things about them. So let's start with the second of the blessers here. Verse 3. The Lord Jesus Christ. And here is what Paul just cannot help but say about the Lord Jesus Christ when he mentions him. Look in verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. What you have right here is a consequence of the grace that comes to you from Jesus Christ. We're going to see in Galatians that Jesus giving himself for our sins, it doesn't mean like for the benefit of our sins. What does it mean? It means he gives himself to go on a cross To become a curse, because the Old Testament says, cursed is everyone hung upon a tree. He is cursed for our curse. If you've sinned, and you have, the Bible says, cursed is everyone who doesn't keep every commandment of God. We'll see that. You're under a curse. The punishment is hell forever. Jesus giving himself for our sins is his death upon the cross where he becomes a curse and almost magnetically pulls our curse onto himself and then pushes out his righteousness onto us. That's him giving himself on the cross for our sins so that we become not cursed but blessed. And we'll see that later on. That's the idea here. It's clear to us, especially after going through 1 John, what he says right afterward, why did he give himself for our sins? You would expect him to say, to deliver us from hell. But that's not what he says in this passage. He says, to deliver us from the present evil age. But that's not a surprise to you all, because you just went through 1 John. And you know that Christ giving himself for our sins is not just a way for him to give us fire insurance to escape hell. But anyone born of God is changed. You overcome the evil one. You resist the lure of the world. 
These are true of you if you're in Christ. And so Jesus' death upon the cross, yes, covers your sins. He takes your curse. But here's his purpose. It's a two of purpose to deliver us from the present evil age. We are not owned like unbelievers are by this present evil age. We don't belong to this present evil age. The present evil age is the Titanic that's sinking into the ICC. We're being rescued off of it. We're not trying to get comfortable on it. We're getting rescued off of it because when we get to land, that's the next age. That's what the Bible calls the coming age or the age to come that Jesus speaks of. The Bible sees two main ages. There's this age that we live in, an indefinite amount of time where we're waiting for Jesus. And this age is characterized by Satan's rulership over the world. It is a present, you see it, evil age. It's here presently and it's evil. But Jesus died, not just so you don't go to hell, but he died to deliver you already. You live here in this world, but you're not of the world. Already you're not of the world. You're not of this age. You belong to an age to come. That's why you feel weird here. That's why you don't fit in. Even when there are political victories, they're usually short-lasting. That's why Christians have never fit into this world. Because we're delivered from the present evil age. And we belong to an age to come. But I want to just put a little focus here. I skipped over it because I assumed you understand it. I said Jesus gave himself for our sins in order to deliver us. And when we say gave himself, you thought just he died. And you're right. But notice Paul doesn't say that. Paul has a word he can use to say Jesus died for our sins. That's what we say when we share the gospel, usually. But notice how he says it. Talking about Jesus, he gave, what did he give? What did Jesus give so that you could be delivered from this present evil age. He gave himself. He gave himself. That's in England to be rediscovered. <laughs> what in the world? He gave himself. Think of it. There's nothing on the next level of what Jesus could have given. What else could he give you? What else could he give you for your benefit than himself? And that's exactly what he gives here. Now the fact of the matter is, if I may be blunt... We don't believe this. If you believed this deeply, why would you be worried about your financial situation? Am I allowed to say that? I'm going to say that. Why would you be worried about your financial situation? Jesus, when he saw you had a need, because he favors you with grace, says, I'm going to meet that need, and the way I'm going to do it, oh, it's going to require myself? The Son of God, eternal, one with God himself, it requires the giving of myself, then here's myself. And he gives himself to meet that need. Now, fast forward, here you are, child of God, year 2022, and you have a, in the scheme of things, slight financial need. Maybe it's your own fault. Maybe you made poor financial decisions and you're in the hole. And there you are, what are we going to do? And you say, I don't know what we're going to do. You don't know what we're going to do. <laughs> he gave himself for you when you needed it. If he gave himself, then everything else is lower down the chain of importance. Will he not give it? He gave himself. He won't give you the finances you need to survive. He might not give you the ones you want for your lifestyle, sorry. But won't he give you the ones you need? Won't he help you? Say, I don't know how to interact. My biological family, we've got all these issues. I don't know what to do. I don't know, I don't know what to say. It's awkward. Uh, I need wisdom. 
Where are you going to get the wisdom? I don't know. <laughs> he gave himself. Is he not going to give you wisdom and grace to help you? This sin habit, I can't overcome it. It's too much. I don't have the strength. You don't have the strength. Okay, you're right. Who could possibly give you the strength? <laughs> I've got a group of first and second graders that I teach over here in the morning. They could all tell you, okay? You know this. God, Jesus, who gave himself, will he not also give you the strength to do that? This goes right back to this idea of really believing the grace that comes not just from God, but comes from Christ. Do you believe he favors you, but he treats you worse than any of your friends? He's stingy with his mercies. He's stingy with his kindness. Nope, not going to give it. You want bread? Here's a rock. Is that the view of Jesus that you have? No. If he gave himself, that is grace beyond what we can comprehend. And there's nothing above that. And therefore, he'll give us everything else we need. Of course, the passage you're probably thinking of, where I draw some of this from, is in Romans chapter 8, speaking really of the Father. But Paul wrote to the Romans, if God is for us, that's grace. If you believe that, that's grace. If that's true, who or what can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, top of the list, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's everything you'll ever need, everything that's for your good. If there's anything for your good, anything, anything, it's yours. Because he, God already gave the Son. There's nothing more he can give. Jesus Christ gave himself. There's nothing more he can give. That's the idea of grace. Graciously, because he favors you that much, give you everything you need. Say, well, I prayed for a car and I didn't get one. You didn't need it. You didn't need it. I needed it. You didn't need it. You're alive. You didn't need it. Anything that's for your good, anything that you need, to be as happy as possible forever, it will be yours. That's the idea of grace here. You have to say it this way with a little noise, sorry. But you have to say it this way because Satan's so loud. And you know that especially on your bad weeks, or maybe it's been bad months, but especially when you're not doing well spiritually, this is what that serpent calls into question. God doesn't really want to help you. You better figure your own way out of that financial trouble because God's not involved. You blew that chance, you know, when you wasted your money, when you did whatever. You blew that. He's not involved anymore. You go figure this out. You got in the mess, you get out of the mess. No. No, that's not true. Grace upon grace for you. So there's the first blesser. It is Jesus Christ. Now, this moves us to our last blesser here, namely in our passage, God our Father. Really, Paul wants you to know in this passage, as an aside, that Christ giving himself for you, it wasn't just something Jesus did and God was off and aloof, but it says right here in our passage, it was done according to the will of our God and Father. And we saw that this was Christ's intention was to rescue you, deliver you from this present evil age, but it wasn't just Christ's intention. It was also the Father's we saw who gave himself for our sins to deliver us. That's Jesus intending to deliver us. Here you have the Father as well. It's according to his will. He wants us to be delivered. Therefore, he gives his son. We don't have time this morning to go into a complex discussion of how the will or wills, whatever you want to call them, of God work as a triune being, three persons. There are lots of books you can read about that. 
What we can say, which is sufficient for our time right here, is that the Father and the Son are completely united in their desire for your good. In this case, to deliver you from the present evil age, but that's the top of the list. Everything else that you need right now is below it. And they are united in their purpose. It's according to the will of God our Father. It's not that, as sometimes gets thought wrongly, the Father, he's the God of the Old Testament. He's just always angry at everybody. And then Jesus, we see grace in him because he's so nice and he touches lepers. And so we plead to Jesus, save us from God of the Old Testament who's so wrathful. Not true. Go read Revelation and see the blood that covers Jesus' garment when he comes in judgment. Or go read the covenant promises of God the Father in the Old Testament that are so full of mercy. It's not that way. The Father and the Son, they both love you if you're a believer. Jesus died on a cross because the Father and the Son agreed that's what he would do for your good. United in their purpose. It's according to the will of God our Father. Now, we skip this over in verse 1, if you look back there briefly, that when he mentioned God the Father there, he couldn't resist. He couldn't even get through one verse without giving you something of an aside about God because he spoke of God the Father who raised him, that's Jesus, from the dead. And it's just emphasizing the same thing we see here, which is that the Father was closely involved in the work of redemption, in delivering us from this evil age, in Jesus giving himself, the Father was there. He was accepting the payment of Christ upon the cross, quenching his wrath toward our sin, and he demonstrated that by raising Jesus from the dead. He wasn't far off. He was deeply involved in your salvation. This passage we have right here, as we come toward a conclusion, you may notice is according to the same pattern found in Paul's doxology in Romans 11 where he says wonderfully that from him, God, and through him and to him are all things. And that's actually exactly the pattern we have in our passage here. If we're just thinking of your salvation, your highest good, where did your salvation come from? According to the will of our God and Father. It came from God. You didn't beg him, reach, grab, please save me. It wasn't that. He planned it before you existed. It comes from God. And then we have him raising Jesus from the dead in verse 1. So the act of redemption also occurs through the Father. He's not uninvolved. He's raising Jesus from the dead. And therefore, if those things are true, then to him. Be all things. And that is how our passage concludes. To whom be the glory forever and ever. As the psalmist says, praise the Lord. For it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. When you see the grace of God and experience it and the peace that follows. When you believe that God freely loves you. Then the response we have is the response given here. To God be all the credit for everything good that has ever happened in my life. Salvation and everything beneath it. We are the people happy to ascribe to God praises. When we gather here on Sunday mornings and sing worship before preaching, that's not like the preview and this the main event. It all works together because we are the people who love to gather. And when we sing, you join me as much as anyone in ascribing to God glory. Because all good comes from him.
And I know sometimes we get distracted and you're tired and you forget and, you know, it happens. But I hope that God's grace will be so clearly rediscovered by you that next week even, when you come in here and we're singing together, your primary focus is an overwhelmed sense. Wow, I can't believe God favors me and I can't believe everything he's done and will do in my life because of that. And that therefore, when you hear, to him be the glory forever and ever, your heart will give just the response that Paul gave at the end of our passage. Amen. Amen.